In this episode, James and I talk about the evolution of the media's business model over the past 20 years, and he draws some interesting parallels with financial advisor businesses. We talk about different advisor models, the scourge of unregulated introducers, fund manager accountability and greenwashing, and we finish with a chat about Ali Hussein, a Sunday Times reporter who occasionally seems to have pushed the industry's outrage button. It's very nice. Yes, it's. Um, I was very worried about commuting, and it turns out to be not so bad. It's actually quite productive time if you can figure out how to use it. Where do you get to training to? Is that a water- Waterloo. Waterloo yeah. Yeah. And I bought a Brompton, Tom. I bought a Brompton. They're brilliant. And actually, it's a pretty short hop for you from, from there across to, to the office, isn't it? Yeah, although I'm glad I bought a... When I was buying one, it was during lockdown and there were no bikes for sale. And I looked at the Brompton website for like every single day, basically, that our house was on the market and eventually saw one that popped up and it was a six-speed one rather than yeah, a two-speed. And, yeah. and I thought, oh, do I need a six? I just, a two. So I just bought it anyway on the basis that I thought I could just sell it if I, uh, for the same price. Anyway, it turns out Guildford's really hilly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the result. <laughs> Yeah, so it's good. Yeah, no, I've I've got the six speed, and I am I'm you know around Bristol. I'm very glad about that. And so, I mean, you know, you can always go the whole hog and get one with a motor attached to it as well these days. Maybe when you're a bit older. Yeah, well, I still can cycle. I'll keep cycling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was trying to work out how long have you been at the Sunday Times? Three and a bit years. And so before that, it was the Mail. Before that, the Mail for fourteen years. 14 years and you did a spell at financial advisor as well i was before that i was at money marketing for a bit and then i was at financial advisor a bit for a bit before that i've forgotten about the money marketing i was only a very very briefly at money marketing six or seven months right, right. so you've been a financial journalist for what 20 odd years now yeah about that yeah so i wish i was thinking about this you know every generation of financial journalists there's just a few that kind of sort of rise to the top and end up being kind of part of the establishment. And that it feels increased like you're one of them, James. You've just kind of, you've become one of those authoritative voices in the financial media. I was saying to, I saw Jeff Prestridge, he was obviously my colleague over at the Mail on Sunday. And then we bumped into each other at something the other day. And I was like, oh my God, Jeff, it's, it's basically, because I always thought of Jeff as being, yes, you know, one of those people. Tony Hazel and people like that. Exactly. And I was like, and he said to me, oh, dear boy, you've, you're, 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 it's you and me now. <laughs> true that, true that. So I was really interested just to kick off. I mean, I want to get onto this kind of financial services stuff, but I'm, I'm also really interested in your take on how the media has evolved, because in that time you, you, you've worked in the financial media. I mean, we've seen a bit of a death spiral from a lot of consumer media. In fact, I mean, the trade stuff as well has, has kind of really struggled to, to keep its head above water. We've seen titles closing. You're now working at the Sunday Times, you know, and the, the Times was a, a very early adopter on the paywall stuff. So I'm just really interested in your take on all this. Have we, have we reached an equilibrium yet or are we still, is it always going to keep evolving? That is a, such a long question. We could probably spend about an hour and a half discussing that. We're still evolving and we're still in very much in the middle of changes. And you know, I think I've written a column about this before for Financial Advisor because obviously I still write for FT Advisor. I think there's a lot of similarities in, in many ways between a lot of changes that have happened in financial services, particularly with financial advisors, and actually what's happened in the media. Okay. In that 
When I first started as a local newspaper journalist, which I was before I was on Financial Advisor. So where was that? That was in, in Slough and Windsor. I worked for the Slough and Windsor Observer and they were desperately happy days. I, does, I, does it still exist? Oh, well, they do still exist. They've kind of merged into other titles. They've been hit by the local newspaper crunch as much as anywhere. I was there at the time that we made the mistakes as a newspaper in the industry that caused that death spiral, really. So when the internet came along, newspapers thought that rather foolishly, they knew that they had to do something about online news, and they thought rather foolishly that they should... That if you just put everything that you put in a newspaper up on the internet then the what we call display advertisers, the, the ones, the big pick ones that you see in the paper, they would just follow and you'd just be able to replicate that revenue stream and it would all be fine. Because, of course, the cover price of a newspaper didn't really ever properly reflect the actual cost of the newspaper. It was all paid for by advertising. And it didn't. That didn't happen. <laughs> and actually, if you're a local newspaper journalist, and I think this is why so many current national journalists feel so strongly about the BBC, for example, is that... You put your stuff up online and, it, and then your local BBC local reporters just basically took it and did their, followed up on it. And you basically, we ended up killing our own industry because we weren't clever enough to think about the ways that financial services was changing. Oh, well, not financial services, the newspaper industry was changing. And one of the people who realized that very, very quickly, and this is where I don't just have huge respect for Martin because of what he does, but Martin Lewis mm. He was one of the first people to realize the changes in the way that we were consuming our media and turn that into something that was not only incredibly beneficial, but also would make him lots and lots of money (laughs) and was a viable, profitable business. And that was so clever. Martin realized really, really quickly that there was not only was there a kind of empowered group of people out there who loved going through terms and conditions of stuff. And we're incredibly motivated to find low-cost deals. But he also realized that there were new ways of producing revenue, that you had to be different in the way that you got that money, that you used advertisers, that you used those old revenue streams. And it's incredibly clever. And that's the reason why Money Saving Expert is so successful. But lots of other newspapers and other media were very, very slow to realise that. And we've obviously seen huge changes over time in the way that different newspapers have adopted different ways of um, trying to get the revenue that they, online that they used to have in display advertising in newspapers. So, so and the, the most obvious one for a consumer is I now have to pay a subscription charge to access my Times, which I have, I have a, an online subscription to Times. And to me, it's good value for money. I'm happy to pay for that. Um, what You mentioned Martin there. And... and I know quite a few people who've perhaps within the industry and within the media who who have a slightly difficult view of Martin. I wasn't always convinced about him. And then I met the guy and I thought, wow, you actually you are really smart, aren't you? And it was just an absolute joy to do some broadcasts with him, to do some radio interviews with him. I absolutely turned on, on his head any any kind of reservations I had about him. I think he's a really high quality individual and he deserves the success that he's enjoyed. Because he does something absolutely unique and he does it really, really well. Yeah, he's brilliant. And I don't say that in a, well, I say that in a slightly grudging way, but I mean, uh, but I also mean it in a serious, greatest respect type of way. But, but he does it in a different way to the media. We, I pay my subscriptions to Times, whereas he, he monetizes his brand in a slightly different way, doesn't he? By through, through the click throughs and through the, the, the paybacks he gets from, from the. Exactly. 
Exactly. And there are different ways of looking at this. I mean, look, if you look at the national newspapers, they've either decided on paywall or no paywall. If you go for no paywall, what you have to do is absolutely drive traffic for your, to your website, huge numbers of traffic so that you can get people eyes in front of all your stories and get the advertising in there. Paywall is slightly different because, <laughs> funnily enough, if you have a paywall, what annoys people more than anything else, and you see this online all the time, is if you get somebody to click on your story and then they can't read it. They, that is hugely, hu- they get hugely frustrated with that. And the other issue with having a paywall is if, if, if your stories aren't good enough, if readers aren't getting enough from them, then they will stop subscribing. If they feel like you were just giving them something that they can get elsewhere, then they will go elsewhere. And this is the big challenge when you have a paywall. It is about having the the quality of reporting to be in-depth, to be constructive, to be original, to put readers your issues are interested in at the heart of it. And we measure that. We, I mean, that's the great thing about digital. I mean, I'm very much an old school print kind of guy. And coming to the Times was a real eye opener for me in terms of the data that we can get from our stories yeah. that will show us whether or not people are interested. And it's absolutely brutal. <laughs> nowhere to hide for that stuff, is there? There is nowhere to hide. If somebody has read your story, if they've read like what I would call a one fact story, where basically there's one bit of information and you're done with the story after you've done that, they will stop reading immediately and then will move on to something else. And that will be reflected completely in the figures. And it's really, really interesting what people will stay and read. What we find increasingly is that you have to be in depth. You have to be fair you have to have voices that are offering something new and different and constructive. I mean, they will read, Times readers will read the most technical, detailed stuff from top to bottom. And it could be 2,000 words long, which is quite long. And they will read every single word of it if they feel like every sentence is giving them, making them, is, is rich in detail. This is interesting because it sits in stark contrast to a lot of the social media where it's, it's very polarising, it's very reductive, it's very simplified, and it's just kind of like pushing people's pre-existing assumptions about stuff. And what you're describing is something very different to that. Yeah, I mean, people are interested. They're not interested in ha- necessarily... I mean, I think we're lucky with Times readers in that they, they're not necessarily interested in having their own view reinforced. They are interested in hearing different voices so long as that voice is making a convincing enough case for it. I mean, I think there's a great example in the piece that we wrote at the weekend. I mean, it, um, Imogen Chu was writing for us this weekend about being a first-time buyer and how she wasn't going to move in London and this wasn't people's choice. But what she did in that was reflected that, you know, there were, she didn't just do the standards, I'm a woe am I first-time buyer. She looked at generational divides, acknowledged that, you know, baby boomers They did have it good, but also things were very, very different. It isn't quite as straightforward as good versus bad. You get that nuance and people will just read. Well, I mean, they grew up in black and white, didn't they? They didn't have the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So you you just hinted a kind of a parallel with the financial services sector. So I want to come back to that in a second. But you also just hinted in passing at the BBC. And I just... Yeah, I just want to ask you, because I've always got the impression that a lot of the commercial media are just kind of really quite resentful of how the BBC has stolen their lunch over the last 20 years by posting a new service online for free that has got this really trusted brand. You know, how much of a factor has the BBC been in the UK, particularly in terms of how the, the, the commercial media have had to adapt their business plans around that? 
in terms of the modern way that we deal with it, I mean, I certainly when I was a local newspaper reporter, I absolutely hated it <laughs> because we would be working our socks off as local reporters trying to get these regional stories. And then the BBC wouldn't, local reporters wouldn't be doing any of the legwork and they would just come along and just take what you had and offer it out there. And because it's the BBC, they could, they could easily get the traffic to do it. And it meant that our local This Is Slough was not being read at all. As you get older and you get you know, you, you become a slightly more nuanced in your view on these things. And, you know, one of the things for us is that, at the times, is that I think we think that if you want breaking news about the storm coming over and exactly what's going on by the minute, you're going to go to the BBC. You're not, you don't expect the Times to do that, right? You can go to the BBC for that. If you want any of those things that are breaking minute by minute, the BBC does an absolutely fantastic job on that, Right. So where's the gap in the market for the other bits of the commercial media? The gap in the market there is, well, let's give people the final analysis, the final take of everything that they've heard during the day that makes them feel richer from all of these small developments that the BBC has been focusing on. I mean, on COVID, I will use the great example of Tom Whipple, who's our health reporter, you know, who has made the pandemic his own with his brilliant in-depth analysis, his analytical stuff you know, giving people the final read on something that they've heard lots and lots about during the day, but they come out of it still feeling richer, like there was still more to learn. Yeah, so that analysis. And I mean, I, I certainly feel with the, the kind of editorial and the comment pieces you get in The Times that you get really interesting people giving you perspectives on stuff that just kind of just enrich your life. So, so there's that as well, I think. That point, you kind of, you, you hinted at a parallel between the way the media has had to evolve its business model and financial services. What did you mean by that? I think financial services has been quite slow in general to kind of, I mean, whether or not it's financial advice or it's the banking sector, they've been very slow to adapt to the way to changing consumer habits and the way that people, you know, existing business models have been fairly kind of entrenched. I mean, look at what's happened in banking, for example. You had suddenly a change in the way that people were wanting to bank, loads and loads of new customers wanting to bank with apps. And what did the mainstream banks do? They tried to just replicate what they've always done with their current account customers who would come into branches and write checks and stuff. They just tried to replicate that online. Well, that didn't work. This was a new type of customer who required a new type of interaction. All they've ended up doing is losing a whole load of customers to the digital startups who came with a new way of thinking. And then just copying them, <laughs> basically, was what they've done. And done a very good job. If you look at customer satisfaction levels, say, of banks with the internet providers on their internet satisfaction, they've really, really caught up with the digital startups. Now, I look at sometimes lists with financial advice, and I think to myself sometimes, God, financial advisors have been so... I mean, I remember being... When I first started at Financial Advisor, we had Paul Smee, who was the head of IEFA at the time, uh, who I thought was a fantastically intelligent and very rational, really thoughtful. thoughtful. And you probably remember this, Tom, that Paul's great thing, and we're still talking uh, in pre-RDR times here, Paul's great thing was basically to to tell financial advisors in in all their forms, I'm using that as a catch-all term for all the different bits of business, to say to them, don't pretend that advice is free. And that was a really controversial thing to say at the time. Do not pretend that the service that you're offering is free. Make people realize that what they're paying for is tell them what that commission is paying for. Let them know the value and quality of your advice. 
And that was so hostile. It pulls the response that Paul got. God, if, he, if he'd been on Twitter at the time, goodness knows what kind of response he'd have got. Yeah, the, reason, the reason for that, James, is because I think quite a few financial advisors actually would have struggled to look their clients in the eye and say, my advice is worth the two and a half thousand pounds I'm charging you for this. You know, there, there was a lack of confidence there in the sector, but, I think. Absolutely. And I can, you know, I think that's really true. And, and, and the trouble is also that the financial advice market has always been split. It's been split between people that are what I think the man on the street would be, a, a think of a, is a financial advisor, which is somebody that is totally independent and plans your finances for you and, and is very holistic in what they do. And then there's the rest of the market which these days we talk about the vertically integrated business or tied advisors, whatever you want to call them. And then you've got introducers, which people think of also are, you know, unregulated people who are also financial advisors. Normal consumers don't know the distinction between all of those things. Now, what Paul essentially, I think, was doing really, really cleverly was saying, look, we've got to, we've got to offer the distinction here for people because this is coming to an end and people really need to be talking about the quality of advice. But he was, everyone was so resistant to that as an idea that actually what happened is that you're now, we're, we're now racing forward 20 years and financial advisors are still fighting this battle over the value of advice and the quality of advice. And you know, the FCA, when they looked at it last year, very clearly said people don't understand what they're paying for. They don't see the, what the value is they're getting, you know. I definitely see, I see good financial advice. I see advisors who do provide a good holistic service and who are absolutely comfortable with saying to their customer, look, this is what I will do for you and this is what I'm going to charge you for my services. And, and those customers say, yeah, I get it and I'm happy to pay that because you're changing my life. That does exist. I completely agree. I completely agree. It is absolutely out there. And I think actually, I mean, without a doubt, if you have got a professional person who is looking after your money and your investments and your tax position. I think tax is something that really gets forgotten about quite a lot and is so important in financial planning. Well, doesn't get forgotten by the financial planners, but gets forgotten about by ordinary people and how complicated that that can be. That seems like a no-brainer to me that that is going to make you richer. Yeah. Right? Because you've got somebody looking up. If, if you could do that full-time for yourself you'd be richer for that. But you can't, most people can't do that. They don't have the time. They don't have the time or the, the skills or, or indeed, in a lot of cases, it's just the inclination. Even if you could do it, you just got better things to do with your time. It's really nice to subcontract it to someone who will just do a professional job for you and take it all off your hands and once a year or whenever come along and say, right, you know, this is everything you need to think about, but I've thought about it for you and we're going to do this and how do you feel about that? And you move on. And to me, that, you know, I can absolutely see why people would pay for that service. But the problem is, I think there's, a, there's probably an existential threat to the financial advice market in its current form. OK, so we've got regulation and we've got the cost of red tape, which is obviously massively onerous. And those are all driven by the mistakes of the past. You know, there were far too many of these firms and, you know, unregulated introducers who were, and I say that all the time, but these bloody unregulated introducers, time and again, it comes up that they are at the heart of the problem. And the FCA keeps saying, oh, yeah, but it's outside our perimeter. We can't do it. They're, they're unregulated. You know, there's, there's a clue there. We can't deal with that. And they operate in this middle ground as well, where we, you know, as financial journalists, whenever we see these cases, we have to delve really, really deep whenever we get a reader who comes to us who looks like they've been missold something to find out that actually it was the introducer that's done this. But then you had financial advice firms who were, read, who were rubber stamping some of these bits of yes. stuff. You know, I'm not saying that those financial advisors quite clearly lacked scruples. Yes. 
But, you know, these are all people that are in the same industry. And it's very, very difficult, you know, if you're, if you're trying to cover this sector to try and split out all the good from the bad. It really, really is. You know, there are so many good ones out there, but there doesn't seem to be much acknowledgement sometimes that where we are today is because of the result of the mistakes of the past. And it's no good pretending that they didn't exist. But can I just test one thing that you, I just want to clarify something, you know, you broadly dumped advisors into three silos. You know, you've got your genuinely independent people, you've got your vertically integrated tied type people, and then you've got the introducers. And you just talked about the introducers. And I think a lot of people recognize that the introducers have been, you know, that's where a lot of the, the problems have stemmed from of late. That second group, though, the tied stroke vertically integrated businesses, how do you see them? Are they, by nature, are they able to do that same good impartial job for their customers? Or you know, is there a qualitative difference in what they can do for their customers relative to a genuinely independent advisor? I think from a customer's point of view, and I, and I, I, I always come at this from a consumer point of view. Firstly, I don't think a normal consumer sees any difference between a financial advisor, a normal, a fully independent financial advisor and a tied advisor. They just don't understand it. I mean, we had a case the other week of somebody who wanted to transfer a DB pension with a tied advisor and didn't understand why they would have to move their money to that advisor's platform. They didn't see that as fair. And that's largely because they didn't understand what type of advisor they were seeing. Now, the other thing about restricted or whatever you want to call them is that you is that you have a limited amount of, it, of investments you can put your money into. And this is always the problem. It's, this has always been the problem when trying to do any kind of analysis between what you would get from an independent and what you get from restricted, is that it always comes down to what are the choice of investments. And if you've got a limited range of investments, then you need to be pretty damn sure that they are best in class or pretty near the top of best in class. So it makes no damn difference. And then you need to try and figure out how you separate out the fees, the ongoing advice fees from that to look at performance. And my constant, constant battle when you're comparing the two is that the restricted advisors make it as hard as possible for you to be able to have a proper discussion about the value of their advice based on their fees. Yeah. And you, you say to them, okay, what if we do it this way? And then they say, no, 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 we reject that. And you say, okay, what if we do it this way? What if we do it this way? What if we add in this platform charge or we do this or we take out this? Are you happy with that? They are never happy with any of those analysis that you can possibly do. If they reject every single bit of analysis, how do you ever say to a reader, well, we think this is fair? Because... Where's the value? Where is the quality? I mean, this is the general issue with financial advice in general. Getting financial advice is like raising a child. It's like you can only try and make the best decisions as you go, but you're only going to know if you made the right decisions 25 years later, by which point it's too late to reverse everything you've undone. <laughs> so we, we did our Lancet conference recently, and Guy Opperman was sort of railing against the industry and saying, you know, we need to simplify charges. Things need to be trans more transparent. It needs to be easier for consumers to compare one against the other. And then later in the same conference, we had Dave Ferguson, sort of recently of Nucleus, kind of talking about how product manufacturers and designers can like operate in some of the shadowy areas where we're not kind of peering in and, you know, little bits of extra charges can get layered in without anyone really noticing. And so there's that opacity there. Doesn't this all come back to the FCA? Isn't this on them? 
to impose a set of rules that means that it is simple and transparent and clear. And there isn't room for people to make little slices at the margins without customers noticing. I think it is. I mean, the, the FCA would always say we're not a price regulator. Well, it's different, though. Well, I know, it, I know it's different, but that seems to be that they're, they're I mean, and, and also, to be quite honest, they're already starting to encroach quite heavily on that remit in other areas. If you look at see what they've been doing with price caps, charging in the, ins- the general insurance industry. I mean, that's getting pretty close to and, you know, also talking about savings, minimum savings rates. All of that is interfering in pricing in the market. So I completely agree with you. I think I think it does. The, the, you know, but how long have we been having this this conversation now about fair charging and transparency over charging? So how good a job? I mean, you know, again, we're going to get reductive here. Just like you know, simple terms, how good a job is the FCA doing? How much of the ills that you've talked about is down to weak, poor, ineffective regulation. I mean, because because you know, there are always going to be people who try and cheat, right? So so the way you stop the cheating is by having good regulation. Yeah. Firstly, I think the FCA is always very, very slow to act on anything. It seems to, there are so many things where we look at and we say, I mean, we wrote one piece this weekend about bank fraud, for example. The FCA doesn't seem to move on with the times very, very quickly. So that its models always seem to be lagging behind the way that consumers are actually behaving and where the new consumer detriment might be. I mean, look, also, I, I don't think this is a financial advisor problem, but so much as a lot of the time to do with the product providers themselves. I mean, if you look at some of the, I mean, the insurance industry and the investment houses in particular get away with murder with the way that they charge, with the assets that they manage to take under management. I mean, if you look at what happened with DB pension transfers, everybody yeah, everybody points the finger at the advisors who went in and transferred them. And there were apps, you know, and quite rightly, because there were absolute rogues who went in and did that. But also, what happened to the life companies? Yeah, so I was, I was absolutely seeing product providers with these kind of big industrial-sized vacuum cleaners hoovering up the money and just kind of doing the whole kind of financial advisor, human shield defense thing. So it's not us, it's not our responsibility. We just take the money. Yeah, the advice is just nothing to do with us. And I didn't think that looked good then, and I still don't think that looked good. Yeah, they're sitting on those ongoing... They got, thank you very much for all those assets under management that we've now got and the ongoing charges. I mean, we see this all the time. So again, the other week, Ali Hussein has been doing such a brilliant job on yeah, yeah, a, a lot of... Talk to you about Ali. <laughs> <laughs> well, about the QROPs mis-selling that's been going on and getting to the bottom of what's happened to all of, that, all, all of these people. And you've got investment houses over here with people who have obviously been missold, sitting on the assets under management, not allowing those customers that have been missold to get out because they're quite happy. Thank you very much. I've got those assets now. Mm. And it goes on and it goes on. I mean, look at what's the investment industry in particular is awful at, at providing any kind of transparency, any kind of clarity over not just charges, but even things like investment strategies. Yeah, I know you. Why is it with you and Noel Quinn, by the way? You seem to have been having a bit of a pop at him recently at HSBC, but you, you, you've written recently about sort of concerns about greenwashing and banks and investment houses kind of saying one thing, but actually doing another in terms of the genuine diligence they apply to things like ESG issues. So my starting point on all that was that we've got things like the task force of climate related financial disclosure. We've got a lot of good stuff happening. We've got taxonomies coming. We've got data measurement coming. We're going through this kind of turbulent period of transition. We're going to come out the other side and it is all going to be reasonably fair and clear and transparent and it is going to kind of going to work. But I sense from the way you've written about this recently, I'm a bit more optimistic than you about that. I'm actually very pro 
the power of investment companies to be able to influence change. They have all this money, money equals power. What I'm not clear on is the accountability of this. And, you know, I was for about a year now, I've been writing about ESG. And there's a funny disconnect that goes on. And I can tell you, if you write about ESG, and I've tried, you know, when I first realized this, when I first realized, basically, nobody reads about ESG, right? People click on the stories, and they'll read a bit, and then they'll switch off. And I can tell you how long they're reading for, right? Oh, and, it, and, it is, and it is not long. So there's a superficial interest there, but people don't have the stamina for real. They're, they're not really that interested. So, well, my, my first question was, is that our fault? As journalists, are we not making the stories interesting enough? Are we not focusing on the right things? So you go back to it and you, you try again, you write again, and you come up with different ways. You listen to the feedback from readers in stories or you see the letters and you talk to fund managers and anyone that will care to have a conversation about it. And you go back and you try again. And the same thing happens again. And you try again and you try again. And you think, well, I've done this for a fair amount of time now. There are only so many ways I can think of in my brain to try and make a subject matter interesting to people. So then I went out and I actually asked some other editors of national papers what they were seeing. And I asked a couple of investment houses to research notes and things like that. And they all said the same thing. Nobody is reading ESG. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, if there's any amount of genuine concern about issues that ESG touches on, you know, across the spectrum, whether it's, you know, fair pay or diversity or, or environmental issues or kind of species that have lost. You know, there's a whole host of stuff in there that people genuinely care about. Why is that breaking down? Well, I mean, part one is you stop a person on the street and you say to them, are you interested in the environment? And they'll be like, oh my God, yes, I want to save the planet, right? Yeah. Will they still go home and run 10 baths a week, leave the light switches on, put their log burner on? Of course they will. Are they going to go and buy an electric car straight away? Mm, probably not. So more are. And the more are, but how many people are buying them because they get a salary, buying them through salary sacrifice on work schemes compared to actually buying one themselves, you know? So there's that. I think that's also, interestingly, why so many financial advisors say, well, clients are interested in ESG. Because when you sit down with them and you say to them, are you interested in the environment? Of course they say yes when they're sitting down, but when they go home, they're not. But the other thing is, and I'm all for saving the environment. I really am. All all for sustainability. But the the problem is, is that what this leads to is huge marketing push from the fund houses to launch ESG funds, right? Huge growth in that area. And then you turn around and you say, well, actually, ESG is pretty good. Look at those three Bailey Gifford funds that outperformed the market. By You know, they were the three best performing funds of um, 2020. Was it 2020 or 2020? I can't remember. And then you look at what happened with the fund flows. Well, actually, loads of people put money in when the investments were going up. And then, oh, look, once they peaked, people started taking their money out. Same old, same old. They're following the profit. They're not necessarily following the investment strategy. And then you say, well, why aren't people interested? And then you look at the mess of ESG funds. How on earth are you supposed to follow some of the benchmarking, some of the strategies that they put in? You look at the language that they use about exactly what they're trying to achieve. You turn around and you say to the fund houses, okay, so what have you done? You've got these investments here. What have you actually done with that? Tell me about that. And they they won't answer you. And it's the same old blooming thing with the fund management industry. It's like, you've got our money. You are guardians of our money. You have this, we've given you this power to be able to do some good with it. What are you actually doing in English language? Can you tell us, please? 
And then you get things like DWS in the state in um, Germany is currently under investigation for for the way it's been stating its ESG investment strategies. You've got what happened with Morningstar the other week, basically stripping 1,200 firms of their ESG credentials because they were mislabeled. And then you've got this whole industry building up behind it. And you think to yourself, oh my God, but so if I'm an ordinary investor and, and I go out and I say to myself, I want to invest in something that's ESG. And I look at that and it's labeled like that. And I'm going to put my money into it. And then say it performs badly for 12 months and you take your money out and you say, well, that's absolutely terrible investment. And it turns out it wasn't ESG in the, in the first place. Then haven't you got a case there for mis-selling because it was completely mislabeled? Do you have a genuine open question? Do you have an idea of what good accountability might look like in this space? You know, how we could reconnect that, you know, I think genuine sense a lot of people have about trying to do a bit of good with the world, trying to avoid catastrophic climate change, you know, trying to do good with my investments. And then just actually, I just can't make sense of what the fund managers are telling me and I'm not that interested. And you know, how, how do we make that accountability work? You, you almost need a cross between Terry Smith and Deidre Cooper at 91. You know, that's what you need. You need to find that perfect mix between Terry's newsletters are brilliant examples of what all fund managers should be doing in terms of explanations of investment strategy, what the fund manager is all about, what the performance is. And, you know, this is a criticism that's been hit at me this time. I'm going to talk about that. Then you need a mix of what Deidre Cooper does, which is basically an ESG strategy that is easy to understand. You know, when we look at diversity in a company, they don't just look at, say, what the diversity on the board is. They'll go away and they look at the diversity of the whole company because you can fudge a board and make it look a certain way. They'll go to the car yeah, park. Bring and, in some female meds, you know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You go and look at the car park and if they've all got diesel VWs, in the car park, well, you know, that's probably not the most, you know, they got the go, you go at 10 o'clock at night and see if they've left all the lights on. You know, these are simple things. Okay, these are really, really petty little things I'm mentioning, but it's the set of principles that is most important. And also you be honest with, with your investors and you say to them, okay, we, we know that this business is not the most environmentally friendly in the world, but actually we're on a journey with it. And that's right, what the your engagement piece is really. Yeah. yeah. This is what your money is doing. It's changing this business in this way. And this is what we're going to tell you how it's doing that. And by the way, these aren't just a set of principles for ESG funds. They should be a set of principles for every single fund that's out there. Yeah, and I know, I know there's been some regulatory aberrations around the space, but it shouldn't be beyond the wit of fund managers who, let's face it, are not short of a few quid to come up with some simple explanations that you've described there. Like, this is, this is what we're doing and this is how it will work. You know, I mean, that, that's customer communication 101 territory, isn't it? Yeah, and every time you try to have engagement with the fund management industry, it's the same. It's just the pushback. We're really, really happy. We've got the assets under management. We don't see why we should change, to be quite honest. So some of that then comes back to our, uh, an element of regulatory intervention. You know, maybe the consumer duty and the FTA stuff coming out about investment strategy stuff will just bounce them into a slightly different place. That remains to be seen. I think that just the way that the industry in general communicates with, with its customers really just needs to have a rethink. I mean, look, I mean, I hate to bring up Woodford and Hargreaves Lansdowne, but I remember very, very clearly when the Hargreaves Lansdowne redid the Wealth 50 list yeah. and Terry Smith wasn't on it and Neil Woodford was still on it, despite all, you know, just three months before it all went tits up. That was the launch event of the Ritz. <laughs> yeah. we, we asked some very tough questions of, of HL at that time. Why is Woodford still on this list? Tell me about it. Tell me about it. And I remember talking to somebody senior at HL who said to me, look, these are, this is the explanation of why Woodford is still on it. 
There's these details here, this, blah, 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 this, 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 all of these things, right? Really, 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 really detailed. Really, okay, right, okay, fine, okay. I don't agree, but I get it. I get the rationale. Where was that rationale on HL's website or spelled out to customers? It wasn't there. And that's why HL has been left with this legacy of so many disgruntled investors, because they feel that that explanation about why it was there was never made clear to them. And that was, you know, an unusual, unusually for Harvey Lansdowne, actually, to be able to, to not do it. And that, that goes back to a lot of problems that were there at HL at the time to do with, oh, I don't know, all kinds of, all kinds of built-in prejudices that you can't necessarily see unless you step back from the business finally and you say to yourself, oh my God, those things existed. I'm not going to push you on this. Don't worry. This isn't, we're not flipping this on, the, on its head. But none of these things I'm saying are, are great secrets. I've written about these things lots of times before. But I do think it's really interesting where communication, let's widen it out again to the rest of the investment industry. You may have a great strategy and a great reason for doing something, but unless you can properly communicate that to your customers, then you've got a problem. Yeah, absolutely agree. And that transparency and accountability is, is absolutely vital for trust. So we mentioned Ali earlier on, and I didn't want to, to get through this conversation without just revisiting it because um, I've known Ali a long time. I really like him. You know, we've socialized together. So this is not personal, but I mean, just two things about Ali. One is when I worked at HL, and I've heard this from others as well, you know, the one thing you dread, right, is getting a phone call from Ali around Wednesday afternoon saying, I'm just researching this piece and I wonder if you can help me because you know that's the rest of your week gone. You know, you want to spend the next eight hours trying to drill that. And that's, I mean, it sounds like a criticism, but I absolutely respect him because he's really good at just peeling away the layers of the onion and getting to the detail and getting to the detail. And, you know, when you work in a research or PR department, that I think would be a nightmare because you just end up spending so much time trying to answer his questions. So there's that. But also, I mean, there's just this weekly thing going on with Ali writing something and the whole print of it, I think, the financial advisory community exploding in outrage about something that he's written. I mean, is he doing that on purpose? I mean, look, you'd have to ask Ali if he's doing it on purpose, but, you know, it's me that ultimately makes the decision on what which, goes which in. Which is why I feel like I'm yeah. the question, James. Which is, I yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you said that about Ali, that first bit, because, you know, there is not a single person who deals with Ali every single day of the week that doesn't think that he is, if not the best, one of the best financial journalists in the financial yeah, services yeah, industry. Yeah. Ali has a very strong sense of fairness, and... He really likes to help readers a lot. And what happens most weeks is that we highlight a reader problem. Well, you know, and a lot of these problems are very, very in-depth and very technical, which is why Ali picks them up, because he's a senior reporter. And he's interested, obviously, in a lot of these things like investment charges. And yeah. he's done lots DB of work, transfers. DB transfers. He's done lots of stuff on financial advice in the past and maybe this comes back to the Paul Smee phenomenon but actually it's just like what Ali's doing is just making the industry feel a bit uncomfortable about itself maybe well, the industry needs to I, I don't understand I mean I see that Steve Nelson has tweeted today a picture of uh, Harry Maguire running in front of the Leeds fans and all the Leeds fans sticking their fingers up at him and Harry Maguire looking at them and it says financial advice Twitter against Ali Hussein's latest piece I mean that's what it's like actually I mean I, I don't I, I don't really understand what and look let's just say it is a very small proportion of people, you know, on Twitter. There are 27,000 regulated financial advisors in the country. And compared to that, there's a very small group of people on Twitter who seem to get very upset. But Twitter's like that, though, isn't it? Twitter is, you know, you look at what happened with the Waspy women. The other week, I saw Joe Cumbo getting trawled. I mean, Joe Cumbo, for goodness sake, from the FT, one of the nicest 
calmest, most rational, brilliant journalist, well-informed journalist you could possibly see getting her piece torn apart on there. Criticism is fine. But when it turns into something personal and it's a mob and it's a baying mob, I just try to think to myself, well, what's, what's anyone trying to achieve through any of this? I don't really understand what anyone is trying to achieve because I can certainly tell you that of the people on Twitter that regularly spout up, I've maybe had one email in 20 years from any of them. Right. And I don't think Ali's ever had an email from any of them. So what is it? Is it like, I mean, God, I wrote about the state pension the other week, just about poor old pensioners. Here's what inflation's doing. What a shame that this, and like, there was financial advisors on there having, who spent the whole, I didn't look at it all day long because I was playing hockey away somewhere and I was focused on other things. Came back to it in the evening and there were advisors on there having a massive row about, the state pension and inflation. And it's like, what are you doing on your Saturday? You're going to give yourself a heart attack, for goodness sake. I think the lesson here is probably spend less time on Twitter. Well, I, just, I, find it, I think genuine criticism and debate is really, really, really good. But actually, a lot of the time, this is because it is a mob mentality. And it is like Leeds fans swearing at Harry Maguire. And actually, it's not helpful at all for anybody because you can't listen to it because that's just like, it's like the dads at the football match who always swear at the referee, isn't it? Yeah. The referee, you know, it's like, okay, well, criticism is a critique of something. So, it is, here's good, here's bad. And that's really, really, really helpful. It's really helpful for me because it helps us realise where there is an issue in the market that we should be doing. But, you know, people going on and saying somebody is the worst journalist around, blah, 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 just because they're asking questions that might be a little bit uncomfortable. And actually, most of the time, raising issues that are important to our readers. I mean, God, it's incredibly rude. I mean, I don't know what's going on sometimes with these people. You're going on Twitter and you're basically talking down a normal person who's had a problem with their pension. Yeah. Goodness. I think an interesting message from that is, if, if anyone in the industry has listened to this, if you read something in the, in the Sunday Times that you disagree with, send a reasoned email to James or to Ali or whoever and talk to them about it. Don't just go and rant on Twitter. Is that fair? Well, you can rant on Twitter if you want. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you know, go rant on Twitter. You're the one that looks like an idiot. But yeah, you know, I'm happy to have a conversation about it. You know, we don't have to agree. I think sometimes it's thought that everybody has to agree. But I mean, you don't have to agree. You can have differences of opinion. It's bonkers. If you think about it, if you, if you just take a cool head and you sit back and you think about it and you think to yourself, okay, just take this weekend, for example. Here's a report about a reader who had a problem transferring their DB pension, Right. They didn't want to move it to a, the platform that it'd be doing. So what is the answer to that person? Well, the answer is, firstly, they should have gone to a whole of market independent financial advisor who would have given them this, but they didn't do that. So that's rewinding history. Yeah. So what's the other answer? Well, look, Hargreaves Lansdowne says that they will accept this DB transfer like this. Right, that's the issue. That's the story. How does that turn into... <laughs> How does that turn into this is the worst thing that anyone has ever written and blah, blah, blah. And are you saying that you should lie? Are you saying it's, it's a news report? Are you mad? It's a news report. Okay, so everybody just calm down a bit, yeah? <laughs> I mean, Twitter's funny, though, is, I mean, we've seen this all through lockdown. I mean, partly I think this has been driven by lockdowns because people haven't had enough to do. They've been sitting around at home. It's not just financial services that are guilty of it. It's every single news event that has got some kind of impassioned feeling in it you know people turn to twitter and they just got nothing better to do so probably i'll just go to the pub and have a chat about it instead. oh yeah go and ride your bikes or something <laughs> or do whatever you're doing <laughs> on that note james thank you very much for talking to me today it's been an absolute pleasure really interesting i really appreciate it my pleasure 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.